Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Father, it is extraordinary that you, as the holy God, would stoop to make yourself known to us, your creatures. And even beyond that, that you would then act to forgive the way that we have turned our backs on you by sending your Son so that we might know you, so that he might die for us. May we now marvel at who you are and at what you've done as we see this in your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible gives us many reasons to praise God. I'm sure you can think of some of them. Praise him for his love, praise him for what he's done in sending his son to save us. There's a song which you might be familiar with by uh, Matt Redman called 10,000 Reasons. We sometimes sing it here. 10,000 Reasons to Praise the Lord, it talks about. It doesn't list all of them, but it's true, isn't it? There are many reasons to praise God. But one reason we, we might not necessarily think of immediately is the reason that this psalm gives us three times. Did you hear, in, as, uh, as Luke read it for us so expressively, God is holy. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 9. God is holy. The Lord, our God, is holy. Now, the Bible does speak of God's love in, in many, many different ways. But when the Bible is talking about who God is, not just what he does, the word that comes up even more often than his love is holy. He is holy. What he does is holy. His love is holy. And the Bible and this psalm in particular say, praise him in response to that. Exalt him, lift him up, delight in who he is and how he is not like us. Rejoice. Tell the world how great he is. Acknowledge him as Lord in your life. All of these things and more are what the Bible means when it says, praise the God who is holy. But what does that word holy actually mean? It's one of those bits of sort of Christianese jargon, isn't it? If you go to a Bible dictionary and you look up the word holy, uh, you'll see things like it means God is different from us, set apart, completely other, in a class of his own. And wrapped up with that, you might get a sense of majesty, of glory, of greatness, of power being like the sun in comparison with an ant. This psalm, though, shows us what holiness means slightly differently. Not just sort of defining it, but by showing us what God's holiness means in practice. And that refrain comes three times in, in, in those verses, as we saw. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 9. And actually, that refrain then breaks the psalm down into three sections. Break down three ways that God is holy for us that give us then three reasons to praise him. So let's see what those things are, those three sections, three ways that God is holy. God is holy, first of all, because he is in control 
from verses 1 to 3. He is in control. The Lord reigns. Do you see that verse 1? The Lord reigns. We've seen, we, we get some repeated themes in these Psalms 93 to 99, which are all about how God is king of the whole earth. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks if you've been with us. Psalms 96 and 98 began the same way. Sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 97 and 99 begin the same way. The Lord reigns. But in in Psalm 97, the application of that was to rejoice. It's good news that he reigns. But now, Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Application, tremble. Do you see that? Let the nations tremble. When little ancient Israel thinks or speaks about the nations, think about who it's thinking about. It's thinking about Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, with their fearsome armies of terrifying warriors, their greatest enemies, the things that they fear the most. And the psalmist is saying, let those nations tremble at God because he reigns. He is in control. Think about what those... What, you know, what we or all those around us regard as fearful. What are we afraid of? What is grabbing our fears? There's obviously COVID. There is the fear of endless restrictions. What might the winter look like? When can we ever travel again? What are school and work going to look like in the autumn? But there are bigger picture fears as well, aren't there? What about, what about global warming? We've heard about that. This week in the news, what about Brexit? What about concerns in the wider world? What about Christians and others living in Hong Kong? Wondering what to do in response to the actions of the Chinese governments. What about Afghanistan being overrun once again by the Taliban? The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Earlier this year, our small groups were looking at Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 1 begins with God's people in exile by the Kiba River. And God's people in exile are going to be asking exactly these kinds of questions. What is God doing? And they're going to feel afraid. What is going on? What is going to happen? Where's this all going? Why are we here? Why are we not back in where where we feel we belong? We're at the mercy of Babylon, the greatest nation of the day. And then chapter 1 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's eyes are opened and he sees visions of God. So what are you doing, God? Well, here is what God is doing. And Ezekiel describes this vision of a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. And he describes these four living creatures of extraordinary appearance with faces of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, each with two sets of wings, and their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like torches, he he says. Now, the Bible describes these people around the throne with different words and different terms at different times. But when it says that he's enthroned between the cherubim, don't think of medieval art and pretty babies flying around. These are awesome figures that surround the throne. And Ezekiel goes on and he says that when when these creatures move their wings, the sound is like the roar of rushing waters, 
like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. See, the point is, if this is what God's attendants round the throne are like, and when we see that in Psalm 99, enthroned between the cherubim, if that's the kind of thing that's going on around his throne, well, how much more awesome even then is God himself? So what is God doing as we're in the midst of our circumstances and the things that we're dealing with right now? Lift your eyes and see who he is. He is holy. He reigns over all the nations, over all the world, over all our fears. Let the nations tremble. It's understandable that we ask those questions. What is God doing? Why is this happening? What are you doing, God? If I were God, I wouldn't do it like this. All those things that we feel. But again and again, the Bible shows us that the first and right action in response to who God is, before we get to ask our questions, is simply to fall flat on our face in worship at the God who is holy. Fifty years ago, a theologian called J.I. Packer wrote a modern classic called Knowing God. 50 years ago, he, he wrote this. He said, we are modern people. This is the early 70s. He said, we are modern people. And modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have, as a rule, small thoughts of God. And if that was true 50 years ago, well, how much more is that true today? Our hearts, our minds, our TV screens, our social media feeds are full of us, aren't they? It's all about us. And our concerns and our lives, our, our achievements, our fears. And the psalmist is saying, lift your eyes. See how awesome God is in comparison with all these things. And then you see, well, maybe, maybe COVID is going to get worse than ever. Maybe it isn't. Maybe the living standards of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be worse than ever. Maybe they won't. Maybe China will muscle in more and more on the affairs of Hong Kong and its citizens. Maybe it won't. Maybe the Taliban will seize control of Afghanistan once and for all. Maybe they won't. And in our individual lives, maybe the thing that we fear most of all will happen, bereavement, unemployment, depression, disaster, will strike in some way. Whatever it is, lift your eyes. The Lord reigns, the psalmist says. Tremble before him. Realise that before him our concerns, our fears, our worries are in one sense like ants arguing over who gets to carry the bigger bit of grass into the nest first when there's a massive thunderstorm coming. Think how small we are within the universe God made. One tiny speck in one tiny corner of one of millions of solar systems or whatever it is, it is that God who reigns, who also made the stars, as we read in Genesis chapter 1, who is great and awesome beyond comparison and beyond comprehension. And yet, as J.I. Packer put it 50 years ago, we treat ourselves as though we are God. We have great thoughts and expectations of ourselves, and then we want God to fit in with those. And then we end up thinking of God less as the awesome creator of the universe, enthroned between the cherubim, all-powerful, reigning and ruling over everything he's made. We think of him more as a kind of spiritual butler. Isn't that right? You know, he's, he, well, he's sort of there to solve our problems. 
He's there for happy Sundays when it suits us. He's just sort of hovering, waiting for when we need him, but otherwise he keeps nicely out of the way. He's an optional extra. He's the icing on the cake that we spend most of our lives making our own way by ourselves. He's a museum artifact that we can kind of pick up and examine. No, get real. He is great. He is awesome. He is exalted. He is holy. And that means that he's still in control and reigning over everything, including the details of our lives, even if we won't acknowledge him. He reigns over everyone and everything. He reigns over Christians. He reigns over Muslims. He reigns over totalitarian governments and states. He reigns over friendly North London secular humanists who recycle and give money to charity. He reigns. He's in control. And the question is whether we will surrender to him as our Lord or continue to ignore him and try and rule our lives our way. Gareth read from Philippians chapter 2 earlier and it ends with that vision of every knee bowing before the Lord. The question is whether we will do it now, willingly or later, unwillingly. He's even still in control when we can't quite make sense of him, when our questions go unanswered. It's good to ask questions. It's good to encourage others to ask questions about God. It's good to encourage our children, if we have children or God children or people that we're concerned for or we're teaching in the uh, <clears throat> Sunday school downstairs, it's good to encourage questions. They're good to ask. No, it's, it, we don't want to ignore them. We don't want to tell people, oh, no, you can't ask questions. No, no, we can ask questions, even the really tough ones. Let's talk about them. And some questions have answers that we can give. Others, though, are really hard to answer. Why does a God of love allow suffering? You know, if he's in control, if he made the whole universe, why did God allow this particular suffering, this death, this sadness that I'm grappling with right now? And no, there are things we can say. And we can point to Jesus who suffered, but there's a sense in which we sometimes end up having to say, well, look, He's God, and we're not. And actually, if I could nail down every question, and if God always acted in the way I think he should act, such that I could agree with everything and say, yep, yeah, that makes sense to me, that's exactly what I'd have done if I were God and if I were in his situation. <clears throat> if that is what God is like, would I be worshipping God as a creature made in his image, or would I be worshipping a God that I have made in my own image? He reigns. He is holy. He is in control. Tremble. Be humble. Always seek to know him better through Jesus as he's made himself known to us. But never expect to have him 100% sussed. And then praise him for that. He is awesome. So the psalmist says, lifted our eyes first of all to who God really is but next we need to know whether we can trust him with all that power <clears throat> because in our world today we're suspicious of power aren't we suspicious of anybody who has the power they, what are they going to do with it even in the church we are suspicious of power don't let anyone have too much power that would be bad news 
What if they abuse their power? Can we trust them? Well, we need to see with God, whatever might be true of human beings, with God, he does what is right and fair. So secondly, he does what is right and fair. This is what his holiness means in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. The king is mighty. He loves justice. He has established equity. That means fairness. He does what is fair and right. In Jacob, which remember is another name for God's people Israel, he has done what is just and right. And then the refrain again, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. So what does he do with his power? He uses it for absolute right justice, which he loves. That means he does what is right and fair. His ways are good and right and fair. He's not, of course, good because he conforms to some external standard of goodness or justice or fairness, but because he is the measure of what is good and just and fair. Where else could you go? to find the measure of these things than this awesome God. Now, maybe for, you know, for 2,000 years, maybe the Western world has largely been happy to accept the idea that, you know, if God exists, then, you know, he is the source of justice and fairness. But actually, more recently, we started to see atheists try and go on the offensive because they find Christianity to be uh, not just wrong or irrelevant in their eyes, but actually harmful, they, they would claim. That God's ways actually are not just or fair. Do you remember a few years ago, um, Stephen Fry was interviewed, I think on, on Irish TV, um, something like that, and asked what he would do if he met God. And he said, Stephen Fry said, I'd say bone cancer in children... What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. What do you make of that? Others might say it's, it's not fair or just to uphold a biblical understanding of marriage and human relationships, for example. You know, how can you say God is just or fair or good when he's so out of step with what we've discovered in the 21st century as human beings? And again, the beginning of an answer to those objections is to point to God's holiness. His ways are not our ways. He is sometimes beyond our understanding. That's where the book of Job lands up. After all the questions and all that, 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 all that happens, God finally speaks. And he says, can you make a snowflake? Were you there when I created the world? I'm holy. Bow down in worship. He's not like us. He reigns above all nations. He won't necessarily conform in every detail to what we think we would do. Or what we think is right and just and fair. But he's the standard. He gets to say what is right and wrong because of who he is. If we're still wondering... If it all makes sense, look at where 
he points us. He says, in Jacob, you have done what is just and right. So, you know, think, is God fair? Does he do what just is right? Well, look at his people. Look at what he, God is doing in and for his people. And now that Jesus has come, we can say more. We can say, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, <clears throat> how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Are you wondering if you can trust God? Are you wondering if what he does is really just and fair and right and good? Well, look at what he's done in and for Jacob, for his people, in Christ. He loves justice. And in his justice, in the person of his own son, he took the sin of the world and the judgment it deserves on his own shoulders. Can you trust this awesome God with all this power? Well, look at what he did with it. He did not spare his own son. Well, will you not trust him then to say what is just and right and fair? Well, what about Stephen Fry and his bone cancer objection? What about dreadful suffering in our lives and around the world? Well, there are things that we can't easily explain, but once again, we are taken to the cross. We are taken to the God who is holy, whose ways are not our ways, and moved to tremble before him. One day, perhaps, we will see and understand. Till then, we can take on board the words of Mr. Beaver in Narnia. C.S. Lewis has Aslan, the lion, as the God figure in, in those books. And the children hear about this lion, and they say to Mr. Beaver, oh, He's a lion! That sounds scary. Is he safe? <clears throat> and Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe. He's a liar. But he is good. He is good. He is holy. Then finally, the psalmist gives us one further aspect of what it means for God to be holy, not merely beyond our understanding, but drawing near to forgive. So thirdly, God is holy. He forgives sinners, verses 6 to 9. He forgives sinners. We've gone from the very general and very cosmic through narrowing down onto God's people, Israel, Jacob, now to specific individuals. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, Samuel among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. How can we possibly draw near to this holy God who is beyond understanding, whose ways are beyond understanding? We are like wax that melts in the sun. The closer we get, the quicker we melt in the presence of the holiness of God. How can we draw near? Well, only if he first draws near to us determined to cover our sin and shield us from the consequences we deserve from him. The book of Leviticus emphasizes God's holiness over and over. You know, you, you ever read through Leviticus and you think, what's going on here? What is going on here is that God is saying, have you understood who I am? I'm holy. I'm other. You cannot approach me without risking dying. Stay away. And yet at the same time, draw near because I have made a way for you to dwell, for me to dwell among you, among my people in the tabernacle. Here's a sacrificial system that enables you to draw near to the one from whom we cannot be in his presence without dying. 
His holiness means both take him seriously, don't mess, understand how awesome and immense and majestic he is. He's not your butler. He's, He's not here just to do your bidding. But then draw near because provision for your sin has been made. And you can know this awesome, majestic, holy God personally as he dwells among you. And so the psalmist talks about how he appointed obedient servants to enable his people to know him. Moses, he talks about, he wasn't strictly a priest, but he functioned like one in the sense that he was a mediator between God and his people. Same with Samuel. Through these servants, God's people could hear what God was saying to them and through them and their actions draw near to God. They were obedient, verse 7. Verse 8, you answered them, you forgave them, you forgave your people through them, even though you punished their sin. Think of episodes like Exodus chapter 32, when you know, Moses is up the, up the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, and down the bottom of the mountain, what are God's people doing? While they wait. And what's going on at the top of the mountain? They get a bit bored of waiting, and they make an idol out of a golden calf, and they worship that instead. And what happens then is that on the one hand, Moses prays to God to forgive his people and not wipe them out completely, and he relents. He doesn't just wipe them out completely, which is what they deserve for their idolatry. But then on the other hand, those who then remain against the Lord and don't repent of that idolatry are judged and punished. That's the sort of thing that he's talking about here in Psalm 99. And so today the same choice remains. Will we turn back to our God through Jesus or will we persist in our sin? If we turn back to him, he will forgive us through Jesus' death. If not, we will pay the price for our sin ourselves. Maybe there's a particular sin that we're aware of in our lives today that we know isn't the way that God wants us to be living we need to know God is holy this is not a God with whom we can mess this is not a God with whom we can just say I'm going to do things on my terms but this is a God who draws near to his people to make provision for their sin. When they turn, they come back through Jesus. He welcomes us to know him. And so verse 9, the refrain again, exalt the Lord our God and come near to worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. That is the goal to draw near to this holy God who is not like us, whose ways are not like ours, who's completely in control, who always does what is right and fair, who forgives sinners. Tremble before him and praise him.